On, on that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther, the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pled with him to avert the evil plans of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and if I, and I am pleasing to his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Amandatha, excuse me, uh, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who, <laughs> um, who are in all the province of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at this time in the third month, which is the month of Savan, on the 23rd day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in his own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. And one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all people, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. Chapter 9. Now the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, on the 13th day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all of the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Parshandatha, and Dalphon, and Aspatha, and Paratha, and Adalia, and Eridatha, and Parmashta, and Erasai, and Eridai, and Val Valthasva, 
the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamandatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. Verse 20. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all of the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month, Adar, and also the 15th month of the same, year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, and that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for spending, for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamandatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them, and had cast pur, that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. This is the word of God. Good um, afternoon, evening, friends. Um, is it Alyssa? Is, is that? And then wonderful singer number two. <laughs> and then pianist. You're, I felt like we were in an episode of The Voice. I was like, wow, that, that is really like... Um, I almost prefer to close my eyes and just listen, but then it would make me look pious, and that's not the case. (laughs) But it's so beautiful. I really, um, you know, they say that one of the arguments for God is transcendence. Um, There's like this uh, famous uh, skeptic. He says, no argument for God is more persuasive than Bach. And what he was saying is that, like, there's something about beauty that reminds you of transcendence. And so the singing was amazing, but the reading was amazing. <laughs> Your ability to get those names, by the way, this has nothing to do with the sermon, but like I tell seminary students, when in doubt, read with like confidence, right? I was reminded of that. During my second year of college, we had this uh, student uh, from like East Asia, and she she was so excited for Jesus and we're reading that account where Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate, his college, if you remember those days. For some of you, it was like last year. <laughs> but, you know, um, we're reading about that incident, and it was her turn to read. And she read, like, Pontius instead of Pilate. She said Pilate, right? But she said it with such, like, confidence. Everyone else was like, all these years we thought it was Pilate, I mean Pilate. So for the rest of the semester, everyone was like, Pontius Pilate. And, you know, that's what happens when you read it with such um, confidence. I was really impressed by the reading. Good job, good job. Um, All right. What's tonight? Oh, you know what? If you were here at the beginning of service, um, Alyssa? Okay, sorry, I'm, I'm so bad with names. She conveyed this picture that was, like, perfect, perfect. Like, when she said it, I was like, oh, all right, that's what I'm going to preach about. No, I did, I did prepare, but you see, mm, most Christians have some vague sense of sovereignty, like God is big, God is strong, he's got everything under control. So they had something in their, like, minds. But the way she said it was 
But imagine you were a Jew during this time. It's almost like the Ukrainians right now. And imagine this with me, friends. Like, if someone said, hey, Paul, arm yourself. And um, because you and your people are, you know, probably going to die. I don't think I would have found, like, so much comfort in, like, the encouragement to arm yourself. I think I would have been like, oh. And um, I think, actually, to be honest, it would have been even harder when I think about the fact that I have a family now, wife, children, and thinking about, well, what if we don't have enough resources to protect ourselves? What um, What if we lose... And more than that, you know, my mind, like, just goes to places where the worst thing would be actually for me to die first. I know that sounds, like, very uh, self-preserving, but it's because, in particular, I I can't help but think about if I were to die first, I would not be able to protect my wife, my daughter, right? And so, at the beginning of service, she made this great insight, like, sovereignty— Really, we get it when we suffer. And what do you think it must have been like for these Jews during this time who you know, had a pretty high view of sovereignty, but to also know that their lives were you know, in danger, very real danger? And I share this with you because you know, there's a good chance that many of you are comfortable, which is good, and you know, everything is, well, is going fine. But the thing is this. If you haven't suffered... Um, you will at some point because you just cannot escape that. You cannot. And it's during that time this doctrine of sovereignty really matters, really matters. And so tonight I just want to just reflect with you on three things very quickly. The, um, and it's this. Number one, it's sovereignty, like how we see it. And then number two, Human responsibility. So number one should have been divine sovereignty. Number two is human responsibility. And then number three, divine sovereignty and human responsibility in light of the gospel. Very simple, okay? Sovereignty, responsibility, gospel. Okay, so let's look at the first one, sovereignty. Okay. You know, um, when you look at the book of Esther, the book of Esther is like outrageous. It's such a crazy book. You know, I was thinking about it while I was preparing uh, for this message. Have any of you seen the last installment in Jurassic World? It's called like Jurassic World Dominion, right? It's so bad. <laughs> it's so bad that even my kids who can watch anything said nothing about this movie is believable. And it wasn't even the dinosaurs or like, you know, the genetic cloning. They said this. The number of coincidences in that movie, right, is outrageous. They're like, no, like, thinking or unthinking person would actually think all of this is possible. And I thought, that's exactly what the book of Esther is like. Because think about the book of Esther. So many coincidences that, like, you remember, you worked through this entire book. That, That one night, I mean, it's pretty funny. Like, the king's not able to sleep. So he calls someone to read the records. It's not very different from, like, my wife says to our kids, uh, you have trouble sleeping, just read one of daddy's commentaries. <laughs> like, <what? laughs> and it's true, it works all the time. But, you know, so anyway, the king's, like, reading about, um, like, he's hearing about th- this boring, uh, like, you know, records, and then he hears about Mordecai. 
about how Mordecai was integral in sparing his life, and all of a sudden Mordecai is exalted, right? And there's just everything about Esther is unbelievable. Ironically, there's, as you know, no mention of God. And this is what sovereignty sort of, like, it's getting, like, at this point that even though you can't see it, God is always at work, and he's working to preserve his people and to accomplish justice. He's always working powerfully, and nothing can thwart it. Now, you see, what's really interesting about the attribute of sovereignty is this. If you ever, like, go to study theology, uh, there's this distinction. It's called God's communicable attributes and his incommunicable, right? Super, like, fancy words. And basically, this is what it's getting at. There are some attributes of God that we can identify with. So let me give you an example. When I was in business school, uh, my very liberal friends, I would say to them, you of all people can really, like, you can connect with God. And they're like, no way. You know, we're thinking people. You know, we never believe in God. But you see, my liberal friends had a deep sense of justice. That's that's one of the things I've noticed. Like, a a deep sense that, like, there's too much inequity. The, the rich are too rich, the poor are too poor, and so forth. And I said, you know, that's the God of the Bible. You see, that's like a communicable attribute, this sense that there's right and there's wrong, and we want to do something about it. The thing about sovereignty, it's God's incommunicable attributes because he is the one being, right, whose very will will bring about what he desires. In that sense, there is no one like him. And that sounds abstract, but just think about it like this. Genesis 1, God said, let there be light. It cannot help but happen because God is sovereign. And in that sense, right, the only way to think about it correctly is to think that there's actually no analogy for understanding sovereignty. Does that make sense? Like, if you want to understand sovereignty, the starting point is to realize, actually, there's no comparison to it. You can try to get close to it, but you really can't explain it. So when I was trying to explain sovereignty to my kids, they're like, is it, you know, like they're young. Is it like, is it like, um, it's funny, the examples that they give. They're like, is it like Elon Musk? I'm like, no, <laughs> no, 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 I see why you think that. They're like, because, you know, if you have $200 billion, like you can do anything you want. I'm like, yeah, there's some truth in that. But, and then they're like, well, is it like, um, is it like Superman? I was like, no. You see, and that's why no matter how much you try to get at sovereignty, it's that one thing that we can't really get because it means that truly God is in control of all things and whatever he desires comes to pass, right? But this is the thing, friends, that <clears throat> like whenever you think about sovereignty, you cannot help but think about suffering. This is very important. Because this is what people think immediately. And I get it. They think, well, there's no way a good and almighty God can exist because look at the pervasiveness of suffering. I'm sure you have heard that argument. Maybe you've said it and maybe you have felt it. Um, Some of you might have Netflix. There is this show on Netflix you have to watch. It is outrageously funny it's so sad. It's going to wreck you because you're going to be laughing. Has this ever happened to you? You're laughing and sobbing at the same time. It's really, it's really bad. <laughs> like it jacks you up. But uh, it's called Kataro. Kataro. If you haven't seen it, you have to see it. 
It's, um, it's a Japanese anime, old school uh, Japanese anime, and it's called Katara Lives Alone. And it's basically about this little orphan, right? And um, you just have to watch it. And it's incredible. That show, the way it captures what it's like to be an orphan, it will make you weep. And if you don't weep, you need to pray. <laughs> like that, that show, the way it captures the life of an orphan, the way orphans think, it's just like so creative and so funny. And I thought about that because you see, friends, remember how this book begins? Esther, it, it begins by what saying? Yeah, it says it is, the language is striking. It says she was like incredibly, ridiculously gorgeous. But it also says what? She was an orphan. And anyone here <clears throat> that has some experience with that, you know how, like, um, you know how tragic it is. You know, like, um, this is a, those of you that are parents, I, you can probably resonate with me uh, here. When we had our first child, I remember the first time he got sick. It was about um, day, like, 87. You don't remember because eventually all the days blur together, right? You know what I mean. But I remember the first time he got sick, he had, like, a burning temperature. And when you're the parent of your first one, you're, like, hyper-paranoid. By the third one, you're like, he'll survive. But with the first one, you're like, oh, my gosh. And so I remember looking at him, and he was so beautiful because his temperature was, like, 100, but he was smiling. And every time we came... And we placed, like, a, a wet towel over his head to cool him down. He would find so much comfort. And remember my wife and I, we were looking at each other, like, and we, we, it's so striking. We had this thought at the same time. We said, kids should not grow up without parents. Like, it was so simple, but parenting helped us to realize that. And I think about that because some of you have experienced, like, suffering profoundly, but you see, what's so beautiful about Esther is it doesn't shy from saying, it begins by saying, not only Esther, like, I reread chapter, you know, the first few chapters to get ready for the series. Man, this book is so weird. You remember how it began? The king, he's having a party. He basically objectifies his wife. He says, come on, I want to show you off, right? I was <laughs> cracking up, because if I ever said that to my wife, she'd be like, what? Come here, right? And so she says no. And then he goes, you know what? You're not the queen anymore. Think about how sad that is. Like, women are basically treated like cattle. They're objectified. This is such a bizarre book. And I think that the author intentionally highlights how sad and how deep suffering is. And in the face of that, it says God is sovereign. Do you see that, that melding, that juxtaposition? It says that, yes, God is in control of all things. Even the fact that you're an orphan. Even in the fact that you live in a society where although men and women are of equal value and equal worth, they're treated differently. Where there are just really bad people, right, who want to kill certain groups for no, no reason other than elitism and all of that. And you see, friends, just very quickly before we move on to the second point, I, I want to say this very pastorally. <clears throat> the... Um, the amount of suffering that you get exposed to as a pastor, it, it, it's, it's, it's pretty significant. Um, it's pretty significant. And one thing I have noticed is this. 
Um, I have met so many people who've been through like just profound suffering. And they have said, because of this suffering, I cannot believe in God. Not one of them has like been able to climb out of their sorrow. And I have seen people who've suffered like you would not believe. And yet their hope in all of this is that somehow in ways that we cannot understand, we really cannot, God is in control. And um, I just want to encourage you, like I have no doubt in this room, like there are people who have suffered, who are suffering and will suffer tremendously. And the remedy is not rejecting sovereignty. As the book of Esther says, it calls you to embrace it. It really does. Okay, so that's, that's one, one important truth. Then number two, responsibility. So this is how, like, the way human logic works. We tend to think, well, if God is in full control, then what I do, it doesn't really matter, right? And you've heard this when it comes to evangelism. Like, if in fact we believe that God has saved some unto, like, salvation, then what I do absolutely doesn't matter. And it makes one, like, sense in one way, but the Bible teaches exactly the opposite. See, there's this apparent contradiction in the Bible that's so important to highlight, right? God is fully in control of everything, and everything you do absolutely matters. You see, in this text, had Esther not approached the king, had Mordecai not, like, interceded for his people, and had the Jews not armed themselves, right, then they wouldn't have survived. So you're asking, so which one is it? Is God sovereign or are people responsible? And by the way, the longer you live, this answer makes absolutely, absolute sense. The answer is what? Yes. Yes. And friends, like you might think, well, that doesn't seem to make sense, right? But this is just one footnote I would add to that. If you're like, that doesn't seem to make sense, let me say this very gently. Like, you have to get over yourself. This is why. We, one of the things that intellectual uh, history has shown is that in the West, we have now a disproportionately high view of our intellect. And what I mean by that is this. So, uh, you know, I have super young kids. Someday you're, you're going to meet them, God willing, right? They have this mindset. Think about this when you have a four-year-old, right? <clears throat> and you explain to them something, and you say, hey, guys, Math, it's pretty important, right? What four-year-old says, you know what? That makes sense to me. Like, I can see why math would improve, uh, you know, critical reasoning, and it would help me to solve problems in the future. No. Like, you know what my kids, like, are very fond of saying? That doesn't make sense. It must not be true. They do that all the time. Like, oh, that doesn't make any sense. Like, dad, you're lying. <laughs> like, all those stuff like, that they come up with, right? But you see... Do you notice that hubris there? It doesn't make sense to me. I can't see it. Therefore, it must not be true. You see, that's human hubris. If we believe, and I know this sounds outrageous, that the Bible is the word of God, then somehow, somehow, God is sovereign, so nothing we do matters, and yet we are responsible so that everything we do matters. See, that's what the book of Esther is telling us. It's saying that had Esther not gone out of her way to speak to her husband, 
had Mordecai not instructed the leaders, and again, had the Jews not armed themselves, then they would not have been saved. Somehow in that divine mystery, it makes complete sense. It makes complete sense, right? Friends, you know, I know I've shared with you a little bit about my church, but um, that's why whenever I come here, I love it. It reminds us of like where we were 10 years ago. We were about 30, 40, and <clears throat> if you had asked me then, did we think that we would be able to buy a fairly large property in Tyson's Corner, uh, partner with Reformed Theological Seminary, and check this out, paid off in four years? No way. No way. We were like 30, 40 people. I remember the first time we talked to the bank, and the bank manager comes out, he goes, oh, yeah, you're interested in like buying a building. We, we work with churches all the time. And they're like, how big is your church? You have 1,000, 2,000 members? We're like, Ninety, <laughs> and they're like, "What's your bu- like annual budget?" It's like two, three million. We're like, oh, 300,000. It, it, it. Let me tell you, like, no bank wanted to talk to us except, and they, some of you know this story. Last conversation we have, this manager after rejecting us says, "You should talk to this bank, this one bank. Apparently, they're very friendly to like institutions like yours, right?" So we go, and I walk in. The vice president comes out. The first thing he says to me is, Dr. Jun, what are you doing here? His name was Joe. And I said, Joe. And let me give you a background story. Joe was one of my seminary students. Not only was Joe one of my seminary students, about several years earlier, he asked me uh, if I could meet him at Starbucks. And I remember that because it was fairly early, like 6 in the morning. And uh, we met for about two and a half hours. And he just wanted advice on life and all of that. <clears throat> and then um, at the end of that, he says, you know, Dr. John, thank you for your time. Appreciate it so much. And yada, yada, yada. And he says, you know, if you ever need anything, let me know. And, you know, two, like several, I was like, whatever. And then I see him, and it's Joe. And I said, Joe, remember that favor. <laughs> I said, my church needs a loan of about $10 million. And he's like, I think we can make it happen. And throughout that entire period, Dr. Red and I, we worked our tail off. I'm not, like, for six months, all we were doing was working, 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 right? And um, throughout that entire time, there were so many obstacles. But somehow, God would constantly provide, right? And I share this with you because when I think about the fact that in even this past year, friends, I want to share this with you. It's amazing. We had about 4 or $5 million left on the loan. This past January, someone came in and said, you know what, um, I don't want to wait for another 15, 20 years for us to be able to pay off this building. Because we said we were not going to build a sanctuary space until we paid it off. And he said, here's $4 million. And it was done. And we paid it off in four years. I I share this with you because when I tell this story, I say to everyone, God is sovereign. There is like no amount of planning that would have made this possible. I never could have calculated this, right? (laughs) That's only a tidbit of the story. One outrageous thing after another, but at the same time, let me say this. Had we not worked really, really hard to make this happen, it wouldn't have happened either. 
somehow, like, friends, like, this is a mystery that, like, you have to accept. Nothing you do matters because God is sovereign. And everything you do matters because you're responsible. And I know that sounds like such an egregious contradiction, but the longer you live, it makes absolute sense. Salvation belongs 100% to the Lord, and yet you are called to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see this throughout the entire book of Esther, right? Human responsibility matters. What you do absolutely matters, and God is sovereign. So let's bring it back then to our final point. How does all of this intersect with the gospel? Sovereignty, responsibility, and the gospel. This text is really interesting. It definitely points us to the uh, greater message of the gospel because there's this instance where Esther comes to the king and says, reverse the edict. Do you remember this? Reverse the edict. And he says, what has been declared cannot be undone. There's something irreversible about it. And yet she intercedes for her people. You know why that's an amazing portrait? Because it reminds us of the, the good news of Jesus Christ. You see, on the one hand, we're told that God, he is so holy that he can't just look over sin. There's something irreversible about that. And by the way, friends, that should really comfort us and sober us. You see, it should comfort us because anyone that has harmed you, anyone that has done you wrong, God is not going to let that go because he's so committed to justice. He's perfect in his justice. But there's, it's a double-edged sword. But also, any small and great sin that you've committed, God, he won't just look over. And again, like, if you really want to appreciate this quality, right, I don't know why my wife and I, sometimes this usually happens, like, Thursday evening. That's when we're usually exhausted. And, uh, you know, we'll have, like, a glass of wine together. And we'll have, like, these really pointless but really fascinating conversations. (laughs) So one time we had this conversation. She said, hey, you know, if the boys ever committed a crime, would you report them? I said, of course. (laughs) You know, like, they're a menace to society. And then she said, what about a baby girl? I'm like, oh, heck no, no, it's not here. You know, I said, what? no, 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 that's different. I said, no. And, and, you know, I was thinking about that because in all seriousness, I was thinking, what would I do? And um, there is a part of me that thinks I would just look over her transgression because I'm not perfect in justice. Does everyone get that? But the gospel says that God is so holy that he cannot just reverse his judgment. That's how much he must punish for sin. So even as the king says here, I cannot change my edict, there is a much greater king who says, because I am holy, I must, what do you call, I must judge for sin. I must must, uh, punish for sin. And yet in Esther and in Mordecai, we have a foreshadow of Jesus someone who pleads on our behalf. And what's so beautiful about the gospel story is this. You see here, Mordecai and Esther, they're imperfect foreshadows of Jesus because if you think about this, it's, it's, it's a little bit funny, it's a little bit humorous, where Esther and Mordecai, they write to all the Jews and they say, good luck. <laughs> That's what they basically say, right? They're like, 
you can do it. You can do it. There's no mention that they joined in the struggle here. You see, what's so amazing about the gospel is that Jesus, he doesn't just intercede for us. He's not just our mediator. He doesn't just say, hey, guys, um, instead, the gospel says that he comes, he incarnates, he joins his people. And the impending doom, he says, you don't have to arm yourselves. You don't have to fight for yourselves. Because this is what's so amazing about the gospel, that all of that harm and danger fell upon Jesus fully on the cross. And that's why, like, we read in chapter uh, 10, I think, or was it chapter 20 you mentioned, right? There's a chapter where we said, he has changed my mourning what, into dancing, my sorrow into joy. Because, friends, that's what the gospel has done. In the gospel, we have a king whose holiness is satisfied in Jesus Christ. The, our warrior who has fought for us, he has defeated sin and death, and now he says, in me, you have like life and hope everlasting. You see, friends, and this is why that's, the book of Esther ultimately points us to the true story about how God sovereignly works out salvation in Jesus' suffering. Isn't that like an amazing thing? Like the thing about sovereignty and suffering is if ever you think, well, I'm innocent, right? I was wronged. I was betrayed. I suffered unjustly, right? Like, yes. Jesus was innocent. He suffered unjustly. He was betrayed. He was abandoned. And yet God somehow sovereignly accomplished our victory in his suffering. And that's why if ever, right, you struggle with sovereignty, just look at the cross. And if I can end by just suggesting two things very quickly. Number one is this, and I've alluded to it already, right? Um, I mean this with all sincerity. You, You will, and many of you have, you will suffer in life. It's just, um, and I, I highlight this because uh, Dr. Tim Keller, he has this uh, book. It's called like Walking with God and Suffering, something like that. And he makes a really interesting point. He says that our society is like a unique society because we are very, uh, we're strangers to suffering. Do you know what I mean? Like uh, we, we do everything and anything to shelter ourselves away from this reality. And, and that's not healthy for us, right? Friends, like you know this you will experience so much sorrow in this life. You will. Um, in two weeks, um, I'm, I'm officiating a funeral. It's so sad. It's so sad. Uh, beyond belief. Beyond belief. And it's sad because um, I, he's not a member at my church. He's the son of a member. And I, you know, I went to, you know, do a pastor visit. I sat down with this uh, man and, you know, he was just, um, it was a very powerful moment. You know, I just came in, we're sitting together, he offers me tea, just trying to catch up a little bit. And then, in a very almost impersonal way, he says, oh, yeah, let's just talk about the logistics for my son's funeral, right? I said, you know, I'm just going along with it. And then in the middle of planning, he just freezes. He, he totally freezes. He doesn't say anything. And he just stares out. This is like, you know, a very powerful moment. He's just staring out. And he says, you know, 
He says, no father should ever have to bury his son. And, you know, I was like, oh, <laughs> I was like, oh, this, this is way too overwhelming, right? And so friends, like, it's not like suffering will ever ask your permission. See, that's, the, that's, that's not the way suffering works. And so what will sustain you? And yeah, doctrine of sovereignty will sustain you, but it's a little too abstract. I want to invite you, when you suffer, look at the cross. Look at the cross. Because in the cross, you see the sovereignty of God coming out in the suffering of Jesus. And in the cross, you know, God is in control, and he is for me, and I have no idea what good he's accomplishing. I don't, but I know he's accomplishing good. And so I want to encourage you, cling to the cross. Cling to the cross, because that is our hope in this life and in life to come. So that's number one. But number two is this, right? Even as Jesus came, right, to share in the sufferings, you know what's so great about Esther and Mordecai and all of you Ar Arlingtonians? This is, this is the last uh, application I want to offer to you. Notice how Esther and Mordecai and ultimately Jesus did not use their positions of influence and affluence to shelter themselves. Do you notice that? Instead, they looked up and they saw the people in need and they advocated for them. And in, to some degree, they endangered themselves and for Jesus, he ultimately died, right? I want to like, encourage you in this way. Many of you are in positions of influence or you will be. Many of you will be affluent or you will be. The model that we have in Esther, right, Queen Esther and Mordecai and Jesus, is that use your positions, use your influence, use your affluence, right, to help those who have no one else to advocate for them. Let me end by giving you this great story. Um, there was this exec at a well-known, like, uh, network, and <laughs> this intern had made a pretty significant mistake. It, re it, re it reminded me of when I was first in banking. I got in big trouble because I was inputting data on an Excel sheet, and I forgot one zero. So you can do the math. In other words, it was supposed to be 100 million, and I wrote 10 million. <laughs> Minor mistake. So anyway, like, so there's this exec, and he had an intern, and she made a huge mistake. It is catastrophic. And during the uh, meeting, everyone was about to berate the intern. And then the exec said, no, 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 I did it. It's completely my fault. It was my oversight. And, um, you know, he got in some trouble, but because he was so high up, right, you know, everyone's like, all right, all right, well, whatever, whatever. So this intern from New York City was very, uh, huh, <laughs> She's like, that was weird. And so she went to her exec and she said, hey, what was that all about? And he's like, what do you mean? What do you mean? She goes, you know what I mean. You know what I mean. I made the mistake, right? I should have gotten in trouble. But you, you took, it, you took the hit for me. She says, why did you do that? Why did you do that? And apparently this exec he looks around to make sure no one else is around. He goes, okay, I'm, I'm going to tell you only because you asked me, right? <laughs> only because you asked me. He said, 
I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. And uh, as a Christian, we believe that we serve this great king who um, he used all his power, all his affluence to become weak and poor so that if we trust in him, we will have life. And he said, if this is what my king has done, right, how can I be and do otherwise? Similarly, friends, we don't have an Esther. We don't have a Mordecai. We have a Jesus who used his affluence and his influence to save us. I think the way we honor that in a world of suffering is to go and do likewise. Okay? Let's pray. Let's pray together. God, thank you for doxology. Thank you for the leaders here. Um, thank you for the tremendous gifts that this uh, church has. And um, I pray for everyone that's here in this church, all the members who are not here, that this book might bring tremendous uh, comfort. Suffering never asks for sign-ups. It often comes in moments when we thought, finally, a season of joy. Finally, a season of celebration. And sometimes it's swift, and so it leaves us shocked. And sometimes it's slow, and it tears away at us. But thank you that the gospel declares that we have a sovereign God, a God who is in absolute control, and who will use every circumstance to accomplish his good purpose. And we see that ultimately in Jesus Christ. And so, God, I pray for the brothers and the sisters in this room and those, even those who may not yet count themselves Christians, that they would behold the cross, they would grip the cross, and that they would find comfort in the cross. And in turn, through their comfort and th through their strength, they would be able to comfort and strengthen others as well. And in all this, we pray that the gospel would go forth, that you would receive the glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.